0: Out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to another Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. It is a gorgeous July 1 sunny Austin weekend day. Thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. Okay, so we have a pretty pretty good show lined up for you today. I just wanted to start with a uh, little AI news because we, we have been doing AI and then not doing AI. Privacy, then not privacy. But I think it's it's okay to catch up on some of the things that we find the most remarkable in AI this week. And so I wanted to get a little background here. All right. This is from MIT Technology Review feature police called to an overcrowded presentation of rejuvenation technology. No, not vaginal rejuvenation, just rejuvenation. Juan Carlos Ipsua Belmonte's presentation on anti-aging technology drew a dangerously large crowd at a stem cell conference in Boston. Let's read this. So it's not every day that police storm through the doors of a scientific session and eject half the audience. But that's exactly what occurred on Friday at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center during a round of scientific presentations featuring Juan Belmonte, a specialist in rejuvenation technology at a secretive, wealthy, anti-aging startup called Altos Labs. Interrupting another speaker mid-phrase, officers loudly ordered anyone without a seat to clear out after an overflow crowd began jostling in the aisles for space. You're not getting back in! A conference official told a crowd of PhD students and postdocs who began milling around the doors after being escorted from the room. The brouhaha shows how excitement is building as researchers uncover the secrets of life. And some, like Belmonte, claim they will eventually use molecular technology to radically extend life By 40 years or more, he has said, the meeting in Boston wasn't even about defeating aging. It was a a convention of specialists on stem cells. The idea of these researchers is to mimic in the lab of the way that human cells develop during pregnancy into their specialized roles. The results already include organoids that grow to resemble fetal brains. As well as manufactured retinal cells that have been injected into the eyes of blind people with promising early results. However, while the stem cell researchers want to copy the molecular programs that bodies use to develop, new discoveries could eventually let researchers press rewind on that same process and thus make old animals younger. <gasps> this is almost the ultimate feat for an engineer the reversal of life process said Haifun Lin, Yale University cell biologist and president of the International Society for STEM Research, which organized the meeting. And that explains the boisterous attendees Lin told me later in the day. I apologize if there was a disruption, but take a step back, he added. It's a good sign for this field that there is so much interest. It's a hot topic. Hotter than we expected. Oh. Okay. A law. Now we go to AI law, not as hot, but it's still drawing pushback from big brands in Europe. Executives from firms such as Heineken and Renault join lobby efforts as Europe negotiates West's first comprehensive rules. Here we go. Brussels, regulars in Europe are racing to create the West's first comprehensive set of rules for artificial intelligence. Some businesses say their plans go too far. Okay, well, let's look at the IAPP here. View from Brussels, EU Data Act, EU-US Data Privacy Framework, and more. It did kind of rope in some of this Cyber Resilience Act. Okay, so point one. EU negotiations on the Cyber Resilience Act are set to wrap up next week and will create a new cybersecurity requirement for products with digital elements, i.e. connectable hardware, software... CRA proposed last September is meant to fill the legislative gap between NIS2 directive, baseline, sectoral approaches this is so boring, and product-based legislation and clarify cybersecurity obligations for hardware and software. So the Dutch Data Protection Authority, a tortite, and I can't read the rest of that, is assertively promoting... Protection of a personal data to play a bigger role in online security and cybersecurity. Ahead of a parliamentary debate of the Digital Affairs Committee, the AP released a position paper, uh, calling for personal data to be explicitly part of InfoSec discussions, increased awareness of personal data protection in the EU's, again, NIS2 directive. The AP receives 21,000 data breach reports annually. And more resources from and for the DPA. The Dutch government committed to investing 111 million euros in cybersecurity over 2022 to 2028. The AP just wants its piece of that cake. Nope. So, we'll see. They're just hashing through a lot of this technical, technocratic stuff. And it, it do get boring. It do get real boring. Real fast. But the devil is often in the details. So we're gonna keep an eye out for a couple of things. How identity data is treated in the ecosystem, how long it's stored, what's done with it, and how it relays to the financial sector. I haven't seen any news necessarily this week of, of you know big note, but um, you can always check in with biometricupdate.com and reclaim the net for um, bulletins on digital ID as they come out. So we gotta move on, lots of news this week. So uh, that's the Global Outlook from Brussels on the data privacy framework and some of the AI. Uh, I set up the bullet points, we just really gotta move on. Okay, so it's worth mentioning that Oregon and Connecticut are getting their privacy laws. So each are weighing a state privacy law, I don't know how far along it is, but. Each state has a privacy law that's moved out of their committees. So unless it hasn't been hailed enough, please check out our substack, Liberty in Many Directions, um, in the sources area to follow accounts on Amazon's terrible current behavior on child privacy and other hassles also recounted by uh, Russell Brand and Joe Allen, author of the Singularity Weekly, has a new book out. Um, We're gonna try to see if he'll come out and talk to us about it. And we have some follow-up coverage from the Censorship Industrial Complex uh, event in London, driven by Russell Brand. Last last Thursday, it was a really neat event. Um, So he's busy, busy, busy. Um, He released coverage of the event this week, like day before yesterday, yesterday. So he's also having another baby, as it turns out, baby number three, with wife, Laura Gallagher. And so congratulations to Russell Brand on his happy Padre party that he's having with his wife. So good for him. And uh, we scored an account with uh, our man from Houston, Mark Bear, who was there. And so let's go to his account of the event with some good news. Now, I'm on the phone with Mark Berry. He is a subscriber to Substack, and he has his own Substack. Um, Welcome to the Unsanctioned Citizen, Mark.
0: Thank you very much, Sheila. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Okay, hello. Um, Now, we have Mark today on the program because he decided to attend the London event uh, with Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi, exposing the censorship industrial complex at Westminster Hall in London with Russell Brand. And so Russell released, uh, you know, a lot of audio from the event, and you were sending me audio clips. I was kind of bootlegged. Uh, unfortunately, it was the last <laughs> show I was able to do at Colin, and I didn't bring in any of the audio. Um, so the next time I come in at Colin, it will be just kind of like a, a uh, kind of town hall Q&A type thing. The way I use Colin is, is completely changed. I'm not going to go there and do a weekly news program anymore. Sorry, Mark, but Mark came in from the call audience, and I just wanted to let you know that um, it, it's a privilege, <laughs> and he is also a Texan. Thank you. Okay. So, Mark, what, uh, what you. drew you to the event and to this issue?
0: Uh, great question, Sheila, because obviously it was not something that was done lightly or easily uh, to fly over to London yeah. for this specific purpose. And uh, I wrestled with it quite a while. But what drew me to it was the fact that I have been following um, uh, Michael Schellenberger on his public sub stack, as well as Matt Taibbi on his sub stack, and, um, and become very, very keenly aware of what's at stake in terms of what Michael dubbed the censorship industrial complex. And when, and, and, and I've been... Um, very attuned to it. I believe it's It's in some ways, I hate to use this word because it's so, it sounds so dire but it's existential as it relates to uh, freedom of speech in yeah. the United States but also in may, other major Western democracies. Can, can you tell me because how that would impact so much, you?
1: I'm sorry to break in here, Mark, but can you tell me how that would no, no, impact that's, that's you like, uh, more directly?
0: Well, yeah, as a as, as, yeah, as citizen, I mean here, let me just give a quick background to you. I uh, often, late in my career now. I've spent my career in, in, in business, uh, working for major multinational companies at a pretty high level, and um, and now I'm doing advisory work in strategy and, and marketing and business development. And um, so it doesn't affect me from that standpoint so much as it does as a citizen uh, who's very concerned about watching these uh, very foundational freedoms be threatened. And, and, and it's being done in a very surreptitious way uh, by those who are trying to do it in this sen- so-called censorship industrial complex, whether it's federal government agencies associated with Homeland Security
2: mm-hmm. or
0: NGOs or other you know, big tech um, platforms. It's happening, and, and it's happening in a very significant way. And I, I, I'm very fearful about it because mm. once those liberties are lost, they're almost impossible to regain. And yeah. I fear it for myself. I have two adult daughters who, you know, they they've got their whole lives ahead of them,
1: and I don't want them to live under a different system. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would think that people who have enjoyed liberty in their lifetime, and and are aware of their personal rights, um, kind of watching people kind of peel them away and throw them into the wind, like like they're nothing. Or like they didn't exist uh, is, is extremely alarming. So, um, so you yes. paid into this system. You, you, you let TSA frisk you and, and x-ray your, your genitals. And, and then you got on a plane. And, uh, and, and, you yeah. and you flew to London. And you flew to London. And yeah. you got a hotel. And you went to Westminster Hall. And then you texted me and, and sent me audio. Um, so what what was that like for you? Did you meet anybody interesting? Um, what was the, what was
0: the? It was it was it was very, it was very exciting. It was um, I didn't know what to expect other than to be at Central Hall at Westminster seemed very auspicious, and it's it's a it's a beautiful structure. It's been there for centuries, and it's uh, very central, obviously, to uh, the seat of government for the United Kingdom. And um, and when I got there with my, my youngest adult daughter came in from California, um, we queued up. It was supposed to begin at uh, doors open at 7.30, or 7 o'clock, I'm sorry, and uh, we queued up. There were probably, at the time we queued up, maybe 50 people ahead of us, and the, the line kept growing as, as we stood there, and we met some folks in line with us. I met another Substack author, uh, uh, and he's, he's a, a London-based guy, and um, Gaffar is his name, G. H A F F A R Gafar uh, and his is called Gafar's Notes. He was there and we talked a bit. And I met some other folks uh, while we were in there because we had to wait for probably forty five minutes for things to actually get underway. But it's very exciting because now instead of just reading about this on Michael or Matt's Substack, it was, you know, people in person gathered And I would say that probably most of the folks who were there, understandably, from the UK and probably most of them from London, Mm -hmm. uh, I I would guess that uh, my daughter and I were a handful of people from the States or North America, excuse me, of, you know, be 10% of the attendees or so. Tim Robbins was there. He was in the front row and he took a bow when he was uh, called out by Russell Brandt and also uh, Julian Assange. This is a wife, Stella. Stella Sange. And she put in a, yeah, Stella Sange. She put in a, she put in a, during the Q&A section, she put in a a, a, probably a 10-minute description of what's going on and why it matters and why it should matter to this audience. And and I thought it was very, very well delivered. So Mm. um, it was an exciting experience. Russell Brand, certainly, I'm, of course, familiar with him, but I not familiar with was not familiar with him in this kind of context so much, and he was brilliant. He was, you know, he's he's irascible and and brilliant self, um, and very articulate and a great kind of a moderator for for
1: Michael. Yeah, and that's Matt exactly what he p- he played. Do you mind if we we go over some of the some of the uh, the relay here from um, Russell Brand's sure, Rumble site? So uh, Russell sure. released. Part of the Westminster Hall event on his Rumble channel, and uh, so I'm going to begin about 18 minutes in with uh, some of the stuff from from Matt Taibbi, who um, brought a speech but didn't necessarily do the speech, um, <laughs> right. which was fun, you know. And it, was, and it was fun to see both of them, but they're they're talking about important important topics. So I'm going to go ahead and and. Uh, Play some of this. Uh,
3: but I'll read um, excerpts of it because there are a couple of important points that I, I do think we want to make before um, we get to the larger discussion with, with Russell, which I know you're all anxious to get to. Um, I originally started by uh, talking, saying something very pretentious about uh, George Orwell. i <laughs> um, oh, no, read it. No, oh, no, come on. <laughs> And then uh, from there it led into sort of an introduction introduction to what the Twitter file story was, and it was full of sort of unforgettable asides about Elon Musk and all these other things. <laughs> um, we can skip that. Um, and then there was a quote, uh, and, and basically the idea here is that I went into the Twitter file story um, probably like Michael, w- bringing my old school legalistic kind of Enlightenment era. Um, notions of free speech with me and I was hoping to answer maybe one or two narrow questions uh, about Twitter you know for instance did the FBI maybe once or twice intervene to you know get in the middle of a speech question Uh, quickly we all realized that it was something sort of bigger scarier and weirder than that and here's what I wrote about that The, the, the quote is a sweeping system of digital surveillance combined with thousands or even millions of subtle rewards and punishments designed to condition people to censor themselves. So we're gonna get into the concrete examples of how they did use government, and government did work with these companies to actually censor people, but the larger, scarier issue is the construction, I think, of this gigantic uh, internet age system That is designed to get people to preempt dangerous thoughts by getting people to avoid having them in the first place. Um, And then there was another pretension.
1: Okay, so let's talk about that dangerous thoughts. Since when did you ever think as a taxpayer you were going to commission the federal government to police dangerous thoughts?
0: It's patently absurd and, and very offensive, actually, because uh, who's deciding what thought is dangerous, first of all? And then, and then to sort of impose that structure, and I think Matt brought up a very, very good point, was to get people to do it themselves and using the platform as a means of affecting that.
1: Yeah. And that so that is very,
0: very scary because then it's not an external; it's not so externally impo- imposed as it is systematically imposed.
1: Right. Right. So, so when we got into this, and he's he's discovering that there's there's just peels and peels, um, hundreds and hundreds of NGOs and organizations that have been recruited to to conduct this analysis. Some of it's done by AI, but A lot of it's done by other Americans. Does that freak you out?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's done under the auspices of uh, protecting uh, us, keeping us safe from whatever harm they might uh, think uh, would motivate us to do that to one another. It's very disturbing. And and I'm sure you and and your listeners, many of you are aware of the fact that Matt put together a list of Fifty of the NGOs that he identified originally as participating in this, mm-hmm. and and, that, and maybe you're going to play this tape in a minute, but he talked about there now being at least three or four hundred that he's aware of.
1: Right, and and um, I'm going to probably push the needle a little, little bit further down the the uh, the tape. So it was DHS. That's it was uh, DHS at CISA. Now CISA is a relevant agency. Uh, they they put out. Notice notifications for information security and, um, you know, about Microsoft OneNote and and telling people how to shore up their their networks and things like that. That is what CISA, I thought, was there for. Um, and I think that that's a relevant application of of our our mean tax dollar under Homeland Security, if there's going to be one. Uh, but this other stuff this is censorship and no one no one asked for this except for people in the government who were laundering it from the outside i think go ahead mark
0: no that's that's right i didn't mean to cut you off sheila uh excuse me for that but i think that um you're right this was originally the, the these um entities were originally set up to protect us from external threats and they, and as those external threats have receded into the background—not completely gone, but definitely uh, are less threatening than they used to be—this, these entities had to kind of find new purpose, and so they started to focus inward, and uh, to, per, as you said, to protect infrastructure. But then the definition of infrastructure starts to become all-encompassing, to the point where there was references to infrastructure, including what what people in the U.S., citizens in the United States, are thinking. That the, that we've got to protect that. And to me, that clearly crosses the red line of infringing on the First Amendment.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so That's overly strange. broad that it's it becomes interpreted by you know, like I said, there's input or stakeholder input from other agencies. It gets into the body. Right. And so once we tra- traverse, like, say, the blood brain barrier and vaccines and your health you know there was a lot of internalized medicine medical license taken by the federal government and they just didn't know when to back out so um i'm gonna push the needle ahead here into um a little bit further down see here okay
3: this gigantic uh internet age system that is designed to get people to preempt dangerous thoughts by getting people to avoid having them in the first place. Um, And then there was another pretentious thing about George Orwell. (laughs) Uh, And the idea here was that one of the things that Orwell focused on in uh, in 1984 was this notion of binaries uh, that in the world that he described in 1984 um, there were no shades of gray, like all ambiguities and shades of meaning have been purged, and it wasn't necessary to have words for everything. You didn't need to have words for warm and cold. You could just have warm and unwarm, for instance, right? And this is what we saw a lot of in the Twitter fellows. We saw a lot of uh, taking very complex issues where there are lots and lots of shades of meaning and finding ways to whittle it down to basically two things. And a great example of this was the Virality Project um, that was led by Stanford University. This was basically a catch-all program where Stanford took in information from all the biggest uh, internet platforms, Facebook, Google, Twitter, uh, some others, and they aggregated all the things that they were hearing about COVID and their experiences about what Content moderation, the decisions that they made, and they made recommendations to each of the platforms about how they should deal with these things. And the really fascinating thing about this, well, first let's start with the the, the headline, so scary moment in these uh, in these emails. There was one email um, in which Stanford suggested to Twitter that you should consider. as uh, as standard misinformation on your platform, stories of true vaccine side effects or true posts which could fuel hesitancy as well as worrisome jokes or posts about things like natural immunity or vaccinated uh, individuals contracting COVID-19 anyway. Um, And basically what they were doing here is they were trying to get into the minds of millions of people through algorithms, uh, that if a person was telling a true story about somebody who got the vaccine and got myocarditis, they didn't have to say that they got it because of the vaccine. Even if they just told the story, even if in the next post they said, I'm all for the vaccine, the way the Virality project interpreted that original post was that this could promote hesitancy, therefore, even if it's true, it's untrue right? So you have, in reality, you have shades of meaning there. Uh, There's a true story that, you know, suggests that maybe you should be cautious about the virus, the person might be pro vaccine, uh, but they see it as anti-vax material. So it's vax, anti-vax, right? Uh, And this is constantly throughout, they just took things that were really somewhere in the middle, and they moved them in one direction or another. Another amazing moment was when they uh there was a company called grafica which described the dangers of undermining what they called authoritative health sources like anthony fauci um they were very against uh even the use of puns like Fauci. f-a-u-x-i
1: oh my god I did, was, I did that I did. mark do you know that i did that that hashtag fauci I I, I I did that, I did that, that hashtag.
0: (laughs) Because I merged Fauci
1: with, with Xi Jinping.
0: Yes, exactly. I I remember you putting that out there. I do remember that.
1: It's incredible. That's, I actually did that. How did I make the cut?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, Matt draws on a lot of sources,
1: uh, Sheila Dean and George Orwell. I like it. Yeah, well, George Orwell's much more of the what the story here with the um, <laughs> what is it politics in the English language. Let's let's push up the uh, the needle into some of uh, some sure. of Michael Schellenberger's relay because I thought a Good. lot of the things Good. that he was saying was really really important. Um, He He got and
0: by and by the way, when he first stood up, Sheila, uh, after the the event began, he uh, gave a very full throated, uh, very articulate statement that uh, you know Matt was worried about he was going to measure up or not. But uh, I'm (laughs) glad to hear you're going to
1: Michael. Go for it. (laughs) Well, I mean, they're both they're they're both standalone kind of writers and academic. Types that have really, you know, deep story as far as what they've provided yes. into our society. And they're active right now, along yes. with Russell Brand. So they're kind of like having a... Like, I, I called them the, the white man's powwow and Westminster uh, <laughs> <and laughs> Hall. <laughs> well, there's, I guess mean, there's a but
0: sure. sure. And by the way, one of the things that I asked, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to both Michael and Matt, and I said, is this uh, kind of an off-Broadway uh, situation <gasps> where <laughs> if, if things go as well as they did tonight, you're going to bring this show to the U.S. and Canada? And Michael was very tuned into that idea. He said, well, at least one place, and then I think New York, but I think it should go around to at least five oh, or six yeah. major metros. And, and Matt seemed to be a uh, minimal to that as well.
1: Oh my gosh! That's, that's incredible. I mean, I think that's the first we've heard of that. So I'm glad, I mean, you asked that question, and that's what they they told you.
0: Yeah, that's that's the answer that I got for me. I talked to them each individually, and that's what I got back. So I think there's a lot of stirring around that, and I think having read some of the, the comments in, in each of their sub-stacks, I think there's a great deal of interest because it coalesces the interest at beyond the digital space into actual physical space, and people can gather
1: and reinforce each other and, and come up with all sorts of new approaches to... How do we? How do we stop this? Yeah, get it. Get our arms around it. Uh, try, try to to, exactly. to reconvene as a people and reason on the government that we have, rather than the government that's being invented in front of us. So, um, I'm awesome. going to play some of the stuff from from Michael. He was here on Monday. Didn't know. Didn't know he was here.
0: I didn't either until after the fact at University of
1: Austin. Correct. Yeah, it was a UT Austin. It was kind of a hit and run event, but he did post something. About um, you know, and it was the the Matrix red pill blue pill uh, woke mind virus you know I mean they're very Gen X the way that they they carry uh, the story but I'm just gonna hit play here.
2: But you know this particular kind of a peculiar career, and then she's been I think one of the most important intellectual architects of the censorship industrial complex.
1: Okay, so he's he's talking here about uh, the CIA operative that that kind of presented herself as this this you know nanny minder who's just coming in the door I don't really have a deep state background I just care a lot and you know the way that it was just kind of veneered over um, you know someone yeah. who's who's a lot like Victoria Newland um, and I, can I, I can't remember her name I can't recall her name what was her name I mean, Renee. I'll tell you
0: her name I, be, I believe he's referring to Renee Duresta
1: ah Renee Duresta that observatory. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thank you He's for that.
0: And, you know, you listen to her question. and it'll be
2: like Sorry. talking about like reducing harm in the real world and using very progressive language, like that's like com- language of compassion. And we have to reduce harm. I mean, that's been a big part of it. We have to reduce hatred in the society. And then it just feels like that moment from, you know, the Bourne movie where it's like, and then we have to, you know, fight the disinformation. And, and so, you know, I have to say, I think like that seems to be, um, I mean, that, that seems to be like the undercurrent is that I think that there's that what brings us all together is a kind of suspicion of authority. I and mean, my dad had, not only did he have a, a Beatle, a, a VW bug, we had the question authority sticker on the car. I mean, that was who we were. And so for me, that was a part of it. And, and I think one of the delightful parts of it is that there's there's people in this anti censorship movement, this free speech movement, who, you know, like, there's a guy uh, that had blocked me because he had, we had been in this huge fight about nuclear power, which is something that I support. A lot of the folks that are very anti-authoritarian are anti-nuclear. And um, I actually asked him recently to stop blocking me on Twitter, and he did, because <laughs> we're on the same side of this. And And so, but I do feel like, yeah, that seems like that's a big part of it, is that if there's an ideology, it's just some of it's like, just questioning authority and, you know, um, being able to have a conversation and ask hard questions of people
4: and not kind of not wanting to be in a situation of just following orders. (laughs) My concern is that the end point of this is an inability to openly communicate in good faith in particular with people that you disagree with. It's interesting that Matt Taibbi uses as his framework, George Orwell, and you use a lesser known born film. (laughs) Not even the main ones. <laughs> <laughs> do you think, Matt, that this uh, sort of, like, oddly mercurial mm, shapeshifting shifting probably shouldn't use conspiracy theory type language, should I, in this context, <laughs> do you think that this odd pathology might afford the possibility that many of the agencies and key figures that profess concern around misinformation and its... Uh, linguistic acolytes mal and dis i think are the other ones you can have and they're miss mal this like scrooge's nephews yeah. in, uh, <laughs> in the Ducktales films <laughs> which i reckon michael probably use as a paradigm in a minute <laughs> Do you reckon that some of them, think, them uh, agencies that is like, oh no, we've got to watch all this misinformation, are actually culpable for themselves spreading misinformation? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah, but I don't
3: think they, I mean, Russell, I, mean, I don't think they see it as disinformation.
1: Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think
3: they see things as politically true, uh, even if they're factually, you know, proven untrue later, right? I mean, you know, Michael and I... Uh, just in the last week or so where we've, you know, we've gotten in the middle of this story involving the origins of uh, COVID-19. Now that, it's really a fascinating episode in world history because this thing happened and immediately before we had any answer as to, you know, the cause of the pandemic, a whole universe of possibilities was ruled out we were basically just told it can't be this so let's not look over there um and that is something that maybe you might see somebody in the military think but a journalist should never think like that right we should always first of all we shouldn't really care like um you know all the old journalists that i know would be in they would start with indifference you know I'll, i'll I'm happy to report this if this is true. I'm happy to report that if that's true. Uh, But we were told, you know, basically, no. This is uh, the new version of how we do information in in the world is that things are right and righteous, and that you have to get behind them emotionally as you're reporting them. Um, And therefore, there's this extraordinary incentive to. To, to become a believer, it's much more like religion than, than journalism,
0: I think.
1: Okay, so I'm, I'm going to leave it there. Um, I don't want yeah. a, a mu- to take up too much. That's a good note to leave it on, Sheila. Yeah, um, because government isn't religion here. It, we, we make, we make, we afford the capability of religion. In fact, on my desk, I have a photo. Actually, it's, it's a, a photographed painting of Ben Franklin. And this is the quote. It says, When a religion is good, I conceive it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not ca- take care to support it, so that it, its professors are obliged to call for the help of a civil power, tis a sign, I apprend, of it being a bad one. So there's your bad religion, Mark Bear. Oh, that's that's, I've heard that before. I think it's completely apropos. Yeah. So government isn't in the faith business, and I don't have to believe what they believe in. It's a good crossover to um, to some of the other national security, you know. Rankling around what you believe about, say, UAPs or UFOs or or the alien theory, because right. and that it's right. it's based entirely on whether or not they say that it is true. You're not entitled to have your own experience with a UFO, or uh, you know, you're not entitled to your own experience with with an alien person or an EBE. Um, which, you know, there are plenty of people who've had these experiences, but they are completely written off and thrown in the trash because government. And it becomes, it, at that point, it became about faith and belief rather than this, it, this scientifically happened to me and I have proof they didn't care. So it's exactly the same treatment, the national security treatment that they gave to our medicine. I just want you to know that.
0: Uh, absolutely. And that's very, very disturbing. Yeah, uh, Because that, that does not lead anywhere good. That only leads to bad outcomes.
1: <laughs> well, it did lead to a bad outcome. And and in fact, a lot of people became vaccine injured. Many people died. There were okay. other subsequent okay. uh, documentaries. Uh, died suddenly happened to be one of them. And then there's this other one out there yes. called The Plandemic. All written off as conspiracy theory and disinformation and later uh, proven true, as as he has said. So uh, with that, Mark, did, what about uh, the, the tail end of the the uh, the event? You said that there's going to be kind of like this bloom of, of other events. Do you have any more information about that?
0: No, no I don't. Uh, I just want to be hopeful about that, Sheila, because it seems to me to make um, enormous sense to, to do other events, like the one in London, that spread this word and get the word out. Because I think if uh, certainly Michael and Matt have led the charge, and Russell along with them, of course, and there are other voices as well, but it's going to take a lot of effort to coalesce uh, the pushback against what's been happening uh, from both government, NGOs, corporations, and, and big tech. Um, if we're going to succeed in, in stopping this this trend and it requires a lot I think it requires more people becoming aware of the issues and the depth of the issues and the breadth and then also finding ways to organize around that and to uh, push back in an organized concerted way and uh, I think we can do a lot of it on digital platforms of mm-hmm. course but I think it also requires getting people together in person. And that was, that's what was so powerful about seeing and hearing Michael and Matt and Russell together with um, uh, with the, all the four or 500 people who were in attendance uh, last Thursday.
1: Mark, I mean, it was an extremely rare privilege that you afforded yourself to, to, to be there in person and, and to, to touch and connect these people because they are what we have. You know they're they're kind of like the vanguard, if there is one, to, to stop. Yes. And 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 there is there is an unrepresented number here of of people who um, seem disconnected, uh, but unacknowledged by the, you know the, the there's this Oz figure in public media that makes themselves look bigger, but they are in fact a smaller group of people. And I've said this before about the Snowden leaks is that the concentration of, of government power is, is a smaller group of people than the people that they intend to control. It's, it's the same philosophy. Um, I'll just liken it to the people who are into population control. And, and population control, the concept is ugly, eugenics is ugly, it's always ugly. But there's always like a, it's just a handful of people who with this terrible idea, it's a bad idea. Let's choose who who dies That's because right. we don't we. the numbers of this herd of humanity are too big. It and I'm like, who gets <laughs> to decide? Who who appointed you? Right. Thank so you very much. That's exactly right, Sheila. <laughs> right. Okay. Exactly. So who appointed you to go go call the herd? You know, who decided what the numbers were? So and and. Well,
0: we're the we're the we're the experts, and we've appointed ourselves. Right. They're
1: self-appointed, all so all I think they should start with themselves. <laughs> Like okay, yeah, this, right. <laughs> this, you know this this medicine that you intend to to mass uh, produce and, and make everyone take. Why don't you take it yourself first? And so if you can't and you won't survive the trip, then then maybe maybe think again. So so this is kind of where, where I'm coming kidding. from. They they want this. They yeah. want to call the herd. Let's just say that that's that's the concept. So yes. th- it comes from a place where they think that they they want to manage all. And they don't necessarily have the right. They weren't invited. No one asked them to do this. They're just, they just self-appointed again. They self-appointed. And That's right. uh, and because it's out of their control, they're flipping out. Mass numbers, whether or not the planet can support it or not, they will they will lie to you and lie to me and tell me the planet can't support it when clearly, you know, life goes on. That's right. They don't know, and think they do, and
0: think they have a better, deeper, more accurate answer than any of the rest of us. And I'm sorry, but uh, that they cannot prove that in any way, shape, or form.
1: Well, I mean, there's there's so much that that isn't. Uh, they've proven that they can lie, and that's what I have.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's what I have, Mark. Exactly
0: down understand, That's right, Sheila.
1: They, they've proven that they can lie, and I'm sure of that. So, Mark, thank you for joining us here on The Unsanctioned Citizen. You're welcome back anytime. Um, and uh, so I'm going to leave it there. Do you have any parting thoughts?
0: No, thank you very much for, for hosting this, Sheila, and for inviting me to uh, comment on uh, what was... Uh, it, continues to be a very seminal event as far as I'm concerned, and hopefully the beginning of of many more like it that will give us the opportunity to push back hard and stop this in its tracks. Um, And so I appreciate you creating a platform for that, and I look forward to to further conversations as uh, things unfold.
1: So I also wanted to mention that America this week was a good one in that Taibbi and Kern both came to the same precise decision that I did about coverage uh, and that the Wagner or Wagner mercenary excise of coup, not coup, in the international press is a bucket of propagandist war slop right now. So don't get in it. Wait for the sun to hit high noon after about a week and we'll see what remains if you want the truth you have to kind of be patient and wait this is this is all fog of war i think at this point so that's my parting shot and that is our show so thank you for listening to this edition of the unsanctioned citizen podcast uh look for us at this weekly venue uh, saturday afternoons
0: thanks for listening before you go hit the subscribe button remember that callers are welcome Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.